0: You are listening to a podcast produced by the Center for West European Studies and the John Monnet Center of Excellence at the University of Washington's Jackson School of International Studies. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash EU West Europe.
1: Well, thanks so much for the invitation to, to talk uh, to you today. Um, I want to focus on the European elections, and especially the far-right forces, the model of the Spitzenkandidaten and kind of the US-EU relations, um, how, we, how we see them today. Um, we already talked about the DAD. One thing I want to let you know, part of my job description is to take part in outreach activities. So if you ever need someone in your class, or you have a discussion, or you want to invite people to come talk to your students, you can always talk to me. I'm kind of being paid for that. So, <laughs> um, uh, And then, I mean, it, it's a great opportunity for me, because the, the idea of the program is that I learn about the higher education system in the US, but also about high school education. And it would be great for me to see, what are your students interested in? How is teaching working on a, on a high school level? So. Uh, please don't hesitate to contact me, I'm, I'd be happy um, to, to stop by. And like I said, if, if you're interested in funding opportunities to, uh, to for your students, for internships, for, for small research projects to go to Germany, you can also, um, you can also um, contact me. We already, looking at the the cartoons, we already learned about some challenges the EU faces um, right now. And I also put up four pictures which kind of symbolize uh, those challenges. So you all um, recognize Nigel Farage, UKIP, now Brexit Party. So the challenge of Brexit, the first time ever a country is leaving the European Union. We have a group of people here who are very critical of the uh, EU. So you can see Salvini, Lega, Marie Le Pen, Frau Capitri. She was uh, head uh, chair of the German AFD, but we learned that it's a new party, so there's a lot of changes and kind of struggles inside of the party. So she already left the party, uh, and she did it um, at a convenient point in time, right after the federal elections. So she got her mandate through the party, and then she quit the party. But you can see there's a lot of fights in the party which uh, direction it it should go and what positions it should um, uh, take uh, concerning European integration. Uh, And then we talked about Hungary, uh, Orban, and also Poland. Uh, Kaczynski uh, are two kind of troublemakers in the European unions. Uh, They're facing uh, an oversight by the European Commission because of their constitutional reforms. So this is something. we talked about a pessimistic view. There's a lot of research on democratic backsliding right now. So we see that even stable democracies, we see some authoritarian tendencies. So they're trying uh, kind of going away from the, the democratic ideals, and they're doing it in the European Union. So that poses a big challenge. How is the European Union supposed to deal with this? And then you have a picture of two Donalds, Donald Tusk and Donald Trump. Um, Donald Tusk, the uh, president of the European Council. So. Um, with the Trump administration, we have some very different U.S.-EU uh, relations, uh, so we might uh, uh, take a look at that as, uh, this as well. So um, I mean, and for a long time the EU was just a success story, so you could say the U.S. was growing, uh, there were new members, uh, integration was, uh, was going forward, so um, this is kind of a um, crucial moment in time for the European Union where we are not really sure where it's going to go and that is why the European elections this time um, were so important and and it's um, helpful to take uh, a closer look at them. It's not the first crisis, Um, we heard about the refugee crisis, we had the Euro crisis before, Both. Kind of tested the solidarity of the European Union because that's a central pillar to have solidarity between uh, the the member states. And uh, well, if it's good weather, it's it's easy uh, to have solidarity. But what what about in times of crisis? And we could see that in in the Euro crisis, Greece was kind of singled out, and there was talk about uh, Greece leaving uh, the euro. Uh, so. Um, it was strict debt measures Greece had to fulfill, and in the end they stayed in. And also in the refugee crisis, there was a lot of fight, who, uh, who has to take in, how many refugees do we want to take in, any refugees at all, and um, that is where kind of the decision making in the European Union um, ran into really uh, real big problems, because there, there couldn't be any solutions uh, regarding the decision making that the EU is, um, is used to. So maybe to to take a closer look at these uh, challenges and, and questions uh, about the EU, it's uh, helpful to uh, briefly recapture uh, the particular char- char- characteristic of the EU because we know it's neither a national state nor is it... Um, um, uh, um, an international organization. It is something in between. It's not just a federation of states and it's not a national state, it's it's like its own um, categor- category and that leads to the democratic deficit we talked about. So how democratic is this organization? Um, and I always like to start my talks with something more humorous so i brought you a little clip which you have the cartoons but you also yeah. have clips and i don't know who of you is family familiar with the tv show yes minister or yes prime minister yes. it's a bbc show and um i really love it because it uh, the main theme is that it's a struggle between the democratic accountable minister who is elected and kind of has to speak to the prime minister and the electorate and the civil servant who is there forever and embodies the continuous bureaucracy. So, and they kind of fight about all the questions of political science, bureaucracy, democracy, and there's a lot of great clips you can even maybe use for class. And this one is, they talk about the European Union and you will find a lot of stuff uh, if we talk about Brexit and the referendum. Uh, it's an older series, but which is already in this, uh, in this short clip. So let me just show you. It's, um, the one is the Jim is the Minister for Administrative Affairs, and his Permanent Secretary, Sir Humphrey Appleby. And let's just take a short look at that clip. I hope it works with the sound.
2: <laughs> this, this directive comes from Brussels saying that all EEC members must conform to some niggling European word-processing standard, that we have to agree to the plans of masses of European word-processing committees at the forthcoming European word-processing conference in
0: Brussels. Well, say something. <laughs> yes, Minister. Quite so. <laughs> is that all you want to say? Well, Minister, I'm afraid that is the penalty we have to pay for trying to pretend that we're Europeans. Believe me, I fully understand your hostility to Europe. I'm not like you, Humphrey. I'm pro-Europe. I'm just anti-Brussels. <laughs> I am pro europe i am just anti brussels i think you're anti-Europe and pro-Brussels. Oh, minister, I'm neither pro nor anti-anything. I'm merely a humble vessel into which ministers pour the fruits of their deliberations. But it could well be argued that given the absurdity of the whole European idea, that Brussels is, in fact, doing its best to defend the indefensible and to make the unworkable work—that That is simply not true, Henry. I know huh? it sound pompous, but the European ideas are best hope of avoiding narrow national self-interest. Yeah, that doesn't sound pompous, Minister. That good. Merely inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, humble vessel.
2: Europe is a community of nations, dedicated towards one goal. Oh! <laughs>
0: May we share the joke? Minister. <laughs> um, let's look at this objectively. It is a game played for national interests and all wars. Why do you suppose we went into it? To strengthen the brotherhood of free Western nations, oh, really. We went in to screw the French by splitting them off from the Germans.
2: Well, <laughs> so why did the
0: French go into it then? Well, to protect their inefficient farmers from commercial competition. It certainly doesn't apply to the Germans. No, no, they went in to cleanse themselves of genocide and apply for readmission to the human race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was such appalling citizens. Oh, well at least so. the small nations didn't go into it for selfish reasons. Really? Luxembourg said it for the perks. The capital of the EEC, all that foreign money pouring in. Very sensible central location. With the administration in Brussels and the Parliament in Strasbourg. Minister, it's like having the, the House of Commons in Swindon and the civil service in Kettering. If this were true, why would the other nations have been trying to get in? Such as? Well, take the Greeks. Actually, I find it difficult to take the Greeks. <laughs> Open-minded as I am about foreigners, as you both well know. Oh. But what will they want out of it? An olive mountain and a Retsina lake. I just don't accept any. Oh, I'm so sorry, Minister. I suppose some of your best friends are Greeks. Uh, You're yeah, very dry. <laughs> The trouble with Brussels is not internationalism, it's too much bureaucracy. But the bureaucracy is a consequence of the internationalism. Why else would there be an English commissioner with a French director general immediately below him and an Italian chef de division reporting to the Frenchman and so on down the line? I agree. It's like the Tower of Babel. I agree. No, it's even worse. It's like the United Nations.
2: I agree. Uh, Then perhaps, perhaps, if I may interject, you are in fact in agreement. No, 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 we're we're not. not. (laughs) Brussels is a shambles. You know what they say about the average common market official. Mm. He has the organising ability of the Italians, the flexibility of the Germans, and the modesty of the French. <laughs> and that's topped up by the imagination of the Belgian, the generosity of the Dutch, and the intelligence of the Irish. Oh, <laughs> <geez>. <laughs> it's all a gravy, gravy train. They mean? live on champagne and caviar, chauffeur-driven Mercedes, private aeroplanes. Every one of those officials has got his snout in the trough. Most of them have got their two front trotism in as well. <laughs> okay.
1: So um, they debate the EU and why states are in the EU. And you can see that a lot of talk in the UK we had in the campaign for the Brexit referendum is kind of mirrored here. So what, what different understandings did you see of the European Union? What are reasons? Uh, ask about why, why is a state member of the European Union? What is picked up on here? Which themes are tropes?
2: international humanhood to promote peace, yeah. not national, protect national interests.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that's the positive uh, <laughs> definition uh, the minister has and his civil servant answers, well, what is his perspective on the European Union? Every country that to get something. Yeah, yeah. So it's just a rational way to maximize your profit, your power, uh, the French with their uh, non-competitive farmers. So everybody's in for their own interest. It's just national interest. Um, and then um, you have uh, it starts with the directives coming from Brussels. There's a lot of talk about uh, Brussels uh, bureaucracy, which is framed negatively. And in the end, you have the argument, I mean, there's just uh, bureaucrats in, in Brussels who feast on champagne and truffles and have a good time. Just being paid for by the member states, and this is kind of the the democratic deficit or the question of how accountable is Brussels. And what I like about this clip is it kind of shows you the two different ideas. So it's um, I'm pro Europe, but I'm anti Brussels. So there's kind of a dis- you kind of understand yourself as a community which shares the same values as Europeans, but you're anti the bureaucracy you have in Brussels, and that is a distinguishment. A lot of um, you'll find in populist rhetoric as well. Because they don't just say they don't like the, uh, Europe or they consider themselves a community, but not in the way that it's set up uh, in the institutional setting um, in in Brussels. So let us just take a um, closer look
2: uh, can I at I this. Can I ask a yeah, that? sure. I'm just wondering about that. Because uh, I know there's, you know, the Brits don't consider themselves European. Yeah. And so I'm wondering about, you know these people that uh, they want to be a part of the EU. I- I'm just wondering uh, if they don't if they don't like uh, Brussels, does that also mean that they don't like the EU generally, or do they just sort of like this kind of cultural concept of we're together? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Um.
2: Is it the EU or the
0: bureaucracy of the EU that they don't like?
1: I think w- what this clip shows is they kind of didn't like the bureaucracy, um, and, but it, in the end, it turned out to be, uh, to be a binary question of yes or no. So what Cameron tried to do is, and the Brits always got some special discounts, you know, they had some opt-outs, so they were always reluctant regarding integration, but it was Cameron who called the referendum and that made it a yes or no decision. They probably would have stayed in um, and tried to just halt the process and keep it as a single market, keep it as a strongest economic cooperation, but because of the the uh, UK party pushing the Tories they they made it a yes or no decision and then everybody was surprised it was a close decision in the end and but but this kind of shows you that um, even on the value side there was always some reluctance of the UK to understand itself as a true member and that's different in the other European member states uh, Western Europe where you have the founding states and Eastern European states who kind of after the fall uh, of the wall kind of felt they were taken up by the community and got a lot of support. So that is very special about the UK and that is what the Leave campaign tapped on, that feeling and that's what got them the majority. So, um, and I mean, it's, they, they are kind of right because it is this special institutional setting we see as a mix of an intergovernmental and supranational organization. Um, I just put up a slide uh, with the different institutions, we'll we'll leave the the other ones aside, but just the four major bodies, so the European Council, Council of the EU, European Commission, and the European Parliament. And if we look at the election, the European Parliament is elected every five years, and it's the only body that is directly elected in the European Union. So you could say, well, you have the citizens of the member states, and there's a direct link um, uh, of democratic accountability, while the other... Um, institutions are just indirectly um, legitimized through the parliaments and governments of the member states. I mean, that is, there's still democratic, accounta- uh, um, uh, there's democratic accountability, but it's indirect. And so um, the European Council is made up of the heads of state or government, and you have the Council of the EU Um, of the national ministers, and then the European Commission, which kind of resembles an executive government, which you would have in a national state, is not in a way connected to the European Parliament um, as you would have it in a parliamentary system, where you have an election, you have a majority in the Parliament, and that majority supports or installs a government. And that link is kind of missing here, or it's a different link. And that is what the uh, idea was, the Spitzenkandidaten model, which I will talk about, was kind of meant to fix or to modify, and uh, we'll see how successful that was. And because of this um, particular mix, uh, we, d- we have kind of two dominant modes of decision making. Because it is a mix of an international organization and a nation state, we have intergovernmental decision making, which is kind of the idea that every state r- retains a veto right to uh, secure his uh, sovereignty. And we have the supranational element, which, which is just deciding by majority. So a state can be overruled. Yeah? And this is what happens in the uh, European Parliament. And the, the, the process of integration was to extend the domains where you would have majority voting to more and more areas. And there's just um, some where, where uh, unanimous decisions are still required. So the entry or exit of a new state, um, foreign policy or budget decisions. Um, So still talking to the the intergovernmental dimension. And then if we talk about majorities in the Council and the Council of the EU, they're qualified majorities. So they're not simple majorities, and it's kind of the same concept you have with uh, the US Congress. So you have a um, principle of territorial representation in the Senate and one of popular representation in the House of Representatives. And those are kind of <coughs> a mixed because you need um, for qualified majority 55% of the states agreeing with 65% of the population. So it's kind of mixing those two, um, two elements. So, and, and over time, we have witnessed a process of continuous integration, giving more power to the parliament, making the co-decision procedure standard, um, and extending the realms of qualified uh, majorities. Uh, and this was always kind of carried by an elite consensus, um, but also the um, public support uh, was there for this elite consensus. And this changed now. So this special setup, this polity is under, more scrutiny because of nationalist populist forces criticizing the setup um, and the missing democratic accountability of, of the EU. So before we take a look at the election, it's helpful to kind of distinguish this um, different terms we already talked about, because we talk about populist, we talk about Euroskeptic, we talk about nationalist parties, and there's some um, very uh, instructive article by Matthias Woldoon. You, you can get this through the, uh, the PowerPoint slides, the, the reference. Um, and he tries to disentangle the different uh, phenomena we talk about. So, um, and he does it as an example for the Italian and the Greece party system. So what he says is you have different layers. So a party to be populist, the core element of populism is anti-establishment. So a party will say, we are the outsiders. There's a corrupt elite in power. um, And we are the only representatives of the true people, true people as a homogeneous uh, group. And we represent those interests. And the corrupt elites who are in power um, uh, just are uh, acting in in self-interest. And that might sound familiar to you, because that's uh, something we've heard in the, the US as well. But this populist definition is not in any way connected to an ideology or nativism, uh, or xenophobia, because those are different elements. So you have the populist, you have the far right, far left, euroskeptic, and challenger. And then you can look where are those parties placed. For instance, the Forza Italia, and we'll talk more about this, um, is just a populist party founded by Berlusconi, who was a media tycoon, um, and entered politics to say the politicians are all corrupt, and I'm an outsider, I'm going to change this. Um, and so he wasn't in a way uh, Eurosceptic because he was pro-European uh, integration, and his party was a is a member of the European People's Party. So it's just a single populist party. On the other hand, you have the Lega Nord, now just Lega, which is a far-right party, a populist party, and a Eurosceptic party. So they adhere to nativist, xenophobic logic. No more taking in, no more refugees. Um, deporting refugees, maybe even. Um, so a far-right ideology, they're eurosceptic, they want to reverse European integration, and they're populist because they talk um, about the people in power uh, as the establishment. And it's interesting because now they're in power themselves. So how does it change their rhetoric? And that's an interesting example where you can look at Hungary, where Fidesz is using populist rhetoric but it has been governing for, for a long time. Um, and then you have the, the far-left. So a populist appeal can also come from the far-left. He puts Syriza here. Um, it's kind of hard to see because Greece fought to stay in the euro in the euro crisis. So why would they be um, a eurosceptic populist left party? Um, but his argument is that it's that they wanted different European integration. So they criticize the austerity measures. Uh, they criticize the EU as a neoliberal project. So they eurosceptic in a in a different way. And Paul Taggart kind of tries to have a dif, uh, distinguishment between hard and soft Euroscepticism. So there's uh, a difference between, do we want to exit the, the European Union as a whole, or do we just want a different European Union, or maybe a rollback of some um, uh, fields of, of integration. And then you have challenger parties, which are uh, the Greens, which might have not been in government, which are just challenging the established parties, but they're not doing it in a populist way. So. Those would be the different um, uh, terms we can use to talk about the European party systems. So let's talk about uh, the European elections 2019. They've just um, been, been held in, um, in May. Uh, uh, in all EU member states um, over the course of a couple of days, they're all proportional voting. Um, th- so parties will draw up lists and they'll get corresponding seats to their, uh, to their vote share. Uh, and there are some differences in the national states. So you will have thresholds in, in some of the states um, and there will be an obligatory minimum threshold starting with the next elections in 2024. Um, uh, um, first of all, if you look at this, this shows you the supranational character of the European Parliament because you don't see groups by member states but by party family. So those party groups integrate their, um, uh, the parties from all the different states. So this is truly a supranational composition. So the uh, Socialists and Democrats are the social democratic parties from all EU member states. Yeah? And there was a decision that was made in the first assembly. Uh, to sit along the party family lines, and not along member state lines. So um, you see the four major groups, the Social Democrats, the Greens, Renew Europe, which are the liberals. They they used to be called ALDE, and the European People's Party, the conservative Christian Democrats. You see a very small uh, far left. And then you see an interesting block here um, on the right. So um, the, uh, the, the small far left group, that is where Syriza, the Greek Syriza, uh, the German left party, uh, have their home and they are, like I said, critical of uh, the economic model of the European Union, but they're not opposed to uh, European integration. But the pro-European integration bloc are the four groups uh, Socialists, uh, socialists, greens, uh, liberals, and European people uh, parties, and they all agree that they want more European integration, but they might differ on key measures, uh, um, uh, questions of Eurobonds, uh, questions of policy, but they're all pro uh, European integration. But with the European People's Party, it's interesting because, um, as conservative, as Christian Democratic parties, they it's kind of a fluid line to the groups which are opposed to European integration. And I don't know if you know this, but the Fidesz party is member of the EPP, and it's very Eurosceptical. And um, uh, Orban even did a campaign against Juncker and, and the European Commission, and that's why his party got suspended from the party family uh, before the European election. So there's a lot of tension in the EPP. Um, how much integration uh, do, they, do they really want? Um. And then, the, the, this uh, far right is interesting, uh, if we uh, ask about the challenge, how strong are the parties who want to um, cancel European integration, or roll back European integration, or even exit, you see um, those two groups, and the idea is, the ID, identity and democracy, is the strongest, hardest Euros- Euroskeptic group. So this is where you will find uh, Salvini, uh, Marine Le Pen, the, um, the pictures you've seen uh, on, on the first uh, slide. And you can see that um, one interesting question was, is this block going to be able to merge as one common parliamentary group? Because now you can see the eurosceptics are kind of split into two different groups. And um, that kind of makes them uh, weaker than uh, if they were one group. So the, the challenge was uh, for the European Union, will we see one huge far-right hard Eurosceptic block, which will be able to set the agenda for decision-making or really influence this? And you can see that this did not happen. So you have the ECR, um, where the uh, conservatives, the Tories, UK, um, are a member, or the Polish Peace Party, um, so they kind of soft to hard Euroscepticism. And then you can see that right after the election, there's still 57 representatives who are not affiliated to any group. So it's because the parties are so different in the nation states, it always takes some time till they um, find a home in in one of the uh, parliamentary groups. And some of them still could end up here. Uh, Cinque Stelle, for instance, uh, is not affiliated yet to any group and it's gonna be interesting the the, um, governing party in Italy where they will end up. So we still have to watch where this goes, but the challenge was will we see one big uh, group on the right and we did not see that um, yet. Because if you add those up, it could be the largest or the second largest group. Um, so there was, uh, there was one um, challenge. And those parties on, on the far right, they're not just like, if you think back to the different terms, they're not just uh, populist and uh, far right and Euroskeptic, but they're also very nationalist and xenophobic and nativist uh, in, in their positions. Question? Yeah. Sorry, I don't know the page six.
2: So four do in say France, does the family party recruit people to stand for election, so what you're looking at is an accurate reflection of European values or is it just sort of the political workings of particular political groups?
1: Yeah, very good question. Um, I mean it's kind of a layered process. So, um, and of. And, uh, France is an interesting example because Macron and his La République en marche is a new party. So they weren't represented in the parliament before. And it was interesting where they would end up because it was clear that they will have a strong showing in the elections. And they choose Renew Europe, which made them a, a larger group than they used before. And it's it's a mixed process. So the um, th- they get the seats, and then it's uh, the um, decision of the leadership in the parliament to decide which group they join. But the groups kind of have similar ideologies. So um, it's not that they could choose uh, the the leftist parties or or the far right. So it was kind of clear that they either would stay independent or probably end up with, uh, with the liberals. And because you have these groups stable over time, the voters kind of know which larger party family they belong to and also you don't have just the parliamentary groups but there's also the transnational party federations where the parties are members as kind of umbrella organizations. So as a voter you kind of know which direction you would support and it's just a challenge with new parties because they might not have decided yet which group they want to belong to.
2: So this is a pretty accurate reflection of European political ideology as a
1: Yes. Yes. So um, the European Parliament is the best um, mirror we have for the strength of the forces in the different countries, and it's all combined uh, together. Yeah. So and that's why the European elections were so interesting because if you would have this big block here, you would see well a, much, a large block in Europe in the states of voters doesn't want doesn't want any more further European integration.
2: Yeah.
0: That includes the UK seats. Yeah. yeah. So if they yeah. were pulled out, how would that shift the chart? Yeah.
1: Charges? Good question, because you know bec- Brexit didn't happen yet, so the UK still had to be uh, part of, of the European elections. Uh, and so they are, the Tories are member of the ECR, but we, you showed the slide, they only had four seats, right. uh, so they're really small. It's not going to be that big of a difference. For, for the Social Democrats, they have about 10 Labour seats, so that's going to be a blow for the Social Democrats if they leave. Um, the EPP doesn't have any UK party, so it, it will not change. Um, there are no, uh, the Liberals, uh, they will lose some of the seats. Um, but otherwise, it won't change that much, because uh, you have the, um, uh, the, the Brexit party, which is still not affiliated, because they just have this one goal, and they don't want to take part in any European decision making. So it's going to be the Social Democrats and Kind of the liberals and the ECR who will be affected by the exit, and the, rep- the 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 members of parliaments from the UK will lose their mandate in the moment the EU exits.
2: Question: Do you have any idea
1: about voter turnout in these elections in Europe? Yes, I have a slide for that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I just want uh, to show you the the change. So this is the the, the outgoing parliament, the 2014 to 19. And this is just interesting to compare, because you can see kind of, if we, if we say it's a picture of the sentiment in, in Europe at, at that time, uh, we can see some changes. So you will see that uh, this, this far right block, Euroskeptic, used to be three parties, um, and now it's just two. So there is some process of merging, even though it's not just, just one group. Um, you can see that the Socialists and Democrats really shrink. So they're having a hard time, that party family. Uh, The Greens are the ones profiting, so you heard about Fridays for Future, climate change is a big issue, so the Greens are the party profiting uh, regarding policy saliency, but also because they argue the European Union is the place to do climate change policy. You will hear more about that, but it's a transnational problem, so it needs transnational solutions, and that's why they uh, get a lot of support from the voters right now. So there's a lot of changes here in between. Uh, You can see the the Liberals, ALDE, now a lot larger with the Macron party. Uh, The far left didn't really change that much. And the EPP shrinked as well. So we see that the center left and center right, the big blocks who have determined uh, processes in the European Union, kind of shrink. And it's to the benefit of the smaller parties. But we said they're still all pro-European integration. So it will not change decision making uh, that much. And then the turnout, (laughs) Um, and this is interesting to see because with the groups we look at the aggregate level uh, just on the European level, but if you split it up uh, and look at the turnout, it's 50%, so about half of the people overall uh, went to to vote. But you can see it's very different in in the single member states. So this kind of speaks to that the elections are not truly European yet, so but the mobilisation and polarisation differs a lot by the member state you look at it.
0: Yeah. Uh, what is it, how does it work with eligibility? If you're a EU citizen living in another EU country that's not your country of origin, for example, French living in the UK, do you get to vote for local EU candidate, uh, EU Parliament candidates?
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's the idea of European Union citizen membership. So you can vote in any country. Um, and I mean, there's a um, there's an anecdote that happened in Germany. Um, an a journalist with Italian roots uh, on on TV said he is such a democrat he voted twice in the European. <laughs> and you know, uh, next to the interior minister who said, "Well, that's a crime," because mm-hmm. I mean, still, it's not you, you don't have voting lists for all of the European Union constituents, so they're by, a, by nation state. So there's still some problems which, uh, can he vote in Italy and in Germany? Will they kind of check if he already voted? It was kind of an embarrassing moment because it happened live on, on TV and he's a journalist, so he should know. Um, but uh, yeah, but you can vote in, in, in any member state. So that's the true supranational idea of those elections. And then do you, do you have an idea why Belgium and Luxembourg are the outliers with over 80%? Are they really interested? Luxembourg profits a lot from all the institutions we learned from Yes Ministers, so they want them to stay there. Do you have an explanation maybe why it is that high? Brussels
0: yeah. is a Belgium. Yeah. But also, I mean, those are two of the original uh, members of That's the European Economic Community yeah. have been integral to the European project since the 50s. So. Yeah.
2: Yeah. do they have mandatory voting? Yeah. The <laughs> other ones are good explanations as
1: well, but it's kind of yeah trick question. They have uh, mandatory voting. Um, but I mean there, there's other countries with mandatory voting which uh, have a lower, so Bulgaria as well, but it's a question of how is it enforced. But in those countries, it's uh, mandatory voting, and it's kind of internalized by the voters. So they go, and they feel they, they need to go, but it doesn't say, but it, there could be other reasons as well. Um, so and then you see that um, the uh, there's we do have some problems in in uh, uh, Eastern Europe. So the, the younger member states, Bulgaria, Croatia, just around 30%, Czechia, 30%, uh, uh, Latvia, um, Slovakia, Slovenia. So especially the Eastern European states, it's the question: Why do they have such a low uh, turnout? And is it is it an um, a negative attitude regarding the European Union, or what are the reasons? And it's especially worrying because you think, I mean, they just joined the European Union not that long ago, so um, why is the turnout um, that low? Uh, There's, I mean, there's the model of um, theory saying the European elections are second order elections, so people don't perceive them uh, to be that important, and if you look back to to the institutional setting, well, what am I deciding with my vote? Um, so, it might just be a confusion about is it, an, is it an important election and that's why people tend to vote in national elections but are less inclined to vote in, in the European um, elections. But uh, I, um, it's an overall increase for the first time. So it used to be 43% and for the first time it went up, the, the, the general turnout. So there, there, you could argue that there's some... Um, Hated uh, interest in what's happening on on European level. Um, well, because I'm financed by the DAD, I have to talk about the German election <laughs> <laughs> result. Uh, but I heard there's some interest in that as well. Um, no, it's uh, it's also because Germany is uh, has the highest population in the um, EU, and it's an interesting result in Germany, which I think trends. Um, Uh, tells us something about what's happening on European level. You can see some similar mechanisms here. So the interesting thing is, uh, if you look at the German result, first of all, there's no threshold. So you have, we talked about two-party and multi-party system. This is a true multi-party system. You have a lot of small parties, and uh, if you score 0.7%, you'll get a mandate. So um, a lot of smaller parties uh, who are represented. And then what you can see here, this is really interesting for the first time, the Green Party overtaking the Social Democratic Party. So the conservatives, and this is kind of irritating because CSU and CDU are kind of a joint parliamentary group. They're distinct parties, but they're one party family. So you would add them up. So uh, the CDU kind of scored 39%. But in second place is the Green Party. And that's a big change for Germany. And it might speak to uh, a change in dominance for the second party. And the Greens, especially in Germany, were always very successful in kind of combining an environmentalist party wing with an social equality, social democratic party wing. So there's, they have two feet they stand on. Um, and so they're attracting a lot of voters who, who voted for social democrats uh, and are now interested in, in climate change. Um, so this is a change, and you saw that on European level as well. So the question is, will, will the Greens be the next social democratic uh, uh, party family? Um, and then uh, you talked about the AFD. So that is the most recent addition to the German party system, which is kind of worrisome, because you know the, the specific German history. Um, and it's a right wing, right extremist, right radical. It's not clear what the shape is going to be. Um, but the result shows that it, it is established. So with 11%, um, it's member of all sub-national parliaments, it's member of the federal parliament, and this is the second time they got representation in the European Parliament, so it is here to stay. We kind of have to deal with it, and it's just interesting to see will they kind of moderate and move more to the center, or will the radical forces who they have in the party, which are especially strong in Eastern Germany, so I think your observation were kind of correct. Um, uh, will they will they turn to be more like uh, a Lega uh, party um, and even calling for exit of the European Union? Because they used to be soft Euro skepticism. Um, they just wanted Germany to exit the Euro, but not the European Union. And this is kind of changing now. And they are part of the far right ID group. And so there could be some policy contagion so that they start picking up those ideas and that they want to um, take Germany out of out of the EU. So this is kind of uh, worrisome for German uh, politics. Yeah. So it's an it's an interesting result, and it speaks to the to the European um, level as well. With the smaller parties, so there you can see the the uh, integrating um, force of the European Parliament, because those small parties, uh, Pirate Party. Um, uh, animal Rights Party, this is another Ecological Environmental Party, they all join the Greens Parliamentary Group. So even if they're distinct parties in the uh, national states, and they're competing on national level, they do join a common parliamentary group, and that speaks for the parliament that it kind of manages to to bundle those forces up into into larger groups. Yeah. And it, it may be too far field and too,
2: complicated, too complex in which it is to say can't answer that. Why are, why is the rise of populist right in East Germany and in Eastern Europe? What's what's yeah the that? Are Yeah. Is it is it racial? Uh, I, mean, you, you, uh, I guess my naive. Yeah understanding would be sort of that long history of leftist ideology would have the history of immigration like Western India for example so, yeah. so it's more do. new to them to have in- influence. Influence. I also had a lot of people tell me when I was living in Hungary that like they're not used to democracy and they don't really care if they don't have it <laughs> mm-hmm. so yeah. We don't I don't know how it works yet. I yeah. think Beatrice has some
1: good answer, answers in, in her presentation. I just for the German case I can tell you the AFD was pretty clever. Um, the, the the left party is the successor party of the former socialist state party in Eastern Germany. And we a lot of observers thought after the reunification they would just fizzle out. But they were kind of successful in um, point in, in picking up Eastern German sentiment. They kind of felt as losers of reunification. They were just swallowed by the West. So they felt marginalized. And there was the left party who kind of gave a voice to Eastern Germans. And the AFD is doing the same thing. And that's why they're so strong in Eastern Germany. One of the claims is kind of reunification 2.0. So they're saying we didn't get our share in reunification and we were marginalized and now we want to have a say. And that's why they're pretty strong in Germany, in, in, Eastern, Ger- in East Eastern Germany. But it's also, sadly, it has to do with some ra- racist, racist attitudes, which are stronger in, in Eastern Germany as well. Also, because a lot of um, people who don't share those attitudes moved to Western Germany where the jobs were. So there was a high in, intra German migration to the West. So, um, yeah, people who stayed in Eastern Germany even feel more that they lost. But just that's just for 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 the German case.
2: So there's also a, a large gender gap in as to the ASD being predominantly male.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. White young males are uh, yeah.
0: You also look at I was going to say too the um um with the particular with the Syrian refugees and the the um, attitude to our Syrian refugees uh, the difference between Germany and Austri- Austria was huge. And um, the um, parties that had the areas that had more AFD support were closer to Austria. Mm-hmm. And so it's was kind of an interesting sort of like divide
2: in that way.
1: Yeah. So if we talk about the democratic deficit um, and the missing link between the uh, Commission as the executive and the Parliament uh, as the, the People's Assembly. Um, the the EU uh, Brussels elites uh, recognized this and tried to change it. And for the first time in 2014, um, uh, along the the lines of the Lisbon Treaty, they tried to create a link between those two bodies. And uh, the, the new wording is taking into account the elections. So before it was just the European Council as heads of states and governments deliberating trying to find a commission president or could agree on and then they would uh, present it to the parliament and they could vote on, on uh, this candidate and now the idea is to have real competitive elections and have a winner in the election the strongest party family or uh, a coalition of party families and um, the voter gets to decide in uh, the election who's going to be or which party gets to pick the, the next Commission <coughs> President, and that's what led the parties to present leading candidates or Spitzenkandidaten. The German word was used uh, for this, and to to um, give a face to the party families, to personalize the election campaign, and to to make the EU more accessible and know what I'm what I'm voting for. And this happened for the first time in two thousand fourteen. Um, and this did change the election campaign. You had a European-wide TV debate, a rare moment of like a true European public where everybody in Europe could sit in front of their TV or computer and see how they are debating their different uh, uh, policy platforms. Uh, and Jean-Claude Juncker, the leading candidate for the European People's Party, they came, they were the strongest party. And he became commission president. So you could say success. Uh, That's what the model intended and it happened and the voters, because they made them the largest party or uh, parliamentary group um, could decide on the head of the um, uh, commission. And the the parliamentary groups and the Euro parties, the umbrella organizations of course embraced this concept because it, it gave more power to them. They were the ones nominating the candidates organizing the election campaign. So in the institutional setting, it strengthened the parliament and the Euro party. So it's understandable that in their own self-interest they supported this. And all of them agreed that it should be Juncker who would be commission president, because he uh, headed the largest parliamentary group. And this is different um, this time. Again, we had leading candidates. Scott Keller for the Green Party, uh, uh, again, candidate like 2014. Uh, Westarger, uh, she is a member of the commission for the liberals Manfred Weber for the European People's Party, Franz Timmermans for the Social Democrats and again you had a European wide TV debate again you had them traveling through Europe uh, trying to uh, uh, organize majorities for their proposals but in the end you probably all know who ended up heading the European commission yeah so somebody not on the ticket at all here and so the interesting question is why? I mean, that was the model to democratize the, democratize the European Union, make it more accountable, make it more accessible. And this time, um, it did not work. So um, before we look at why it didn't work, uh, just one poll I got from the Eurobarometer. So they always ask one question. Uh, This is done regularly. A public opinion poll in all European Union member states, my voice counts in the European Union. And you can see the the light blue is I disagree. So for a long, long time, people, if you ask them, with a majority would say my voice doesn't count uh, in, in the European Union. It's just a complex system. I don't know how I could make my voice heard. And then 2014, just ahead of the European elections, you can see a big rise in people who agree. So it seems that the leading candidates and the um, uh, electoral campaigns gave uh, people a feeling that their voice was indeed heard. So it went up. And after that, it kept on climbing. And end of 2018, for the first time, more people would say, I agree, my voice counts. And this even went up to 51% just before the European elections in May 2019. And after the went it went up to 56%. And now it's going to be interesting what happens if people say, well, but the person who campaigned did not get elected. So does my voice count or not? So it's going to be interesting to, um, to take a look at this. Um, I, d- I did a research project on the on the question of the role of the Euro parties because it's interesting that that this model could change their role. Um, I'm going to skip this now because of time, but we can uh, talk in the in the Q and A maybe about this. Um, so, but what happened? Ursula von der Leyen was elected Commission president, and she was not one um, of the uh, of the leading uh, candidates. So, um, first of all, this time in 2019. Um, the parliament was divided about the way forward. So um, again, the EPP was the strongest party, as we've seen, um, and prompting for this time the other parties to criticize this model, saying, well, it can't always be the EPP who gets the commission president if they're always uh, the strongest party, and there's not that much change um, uh, between the elections. Secondly, the EPP candidate, Manfred Weber, um, was a weaker candidate than Juncker. He had never held government office. Um, he his English is not that good, so um, you have to be multilingual if if you run uh, in that campaign. Juncker speaks French, uh, German, English uh, w- very well, um, and he had trouble within his own parliamentary group because he kind of didn't know the answer to what to do with the Fidesz party, who was provoking its own leadership, and for a long time he didn't. Um, uh, present any consequences, and when he suspended them, people said it's not enough. We should expel those party because it doesn't align to to our values. So he was criticized for managing his own um, parliamentary group, um, and another factor was that Emmanuel Macron was not a fan uh, of this model, and he kind of uh, saying it's just um, we need real transnational list, and this model uh, is just um, faking it. So we we should not support this, and he. He um, his party was very strong in the election, so he kind of uh, blocked it as well. And finally, and this speaks to to decision making on European level, the uh, the office of the Commission President is always part of a package. So you also had the head of the European Central Bank. Um, there was an le- uh, election uh, president of the European Council, and also the High Representative for Foreign and security policy. So the European Council had to come up with a proposal and fit all those different positions and get a majority and they weren't able, I mean they did try, but they weren't able to place one of the Spitzenkandidaten as Commission President and then fill the other slots and so that's what led them to a different um, different proposal. And then uh, the last point is that um, Ursula von der Leyen is kind of um, a surprise candidate, but she fits very, uh, very well. Um, she is the first woman to head the commission, so that is important. She was, uh, is the only member who is a continuous member of the Merkel cabinet in Germany since two- 2005, so she has a lot of government experience. She led the family labor and then the defense ministry, um, so high profile uh, portfolios. Um, and she earned a lot of credit for her NATO work, which is kind of similar to decision-making in the EU, getting uh, states together. Together, um, And because, uh, and also, I mean, uh, the softer argument, had that her dad worked for the EU, so she lived as a, as a teenager in Brussels for a, for a long time, so that kind of gave her um, uh, some additional credentials. Um, so, and because she is German, the head of the ECB, Christine Lagarde, could be French, uh, that's fitting, the the, um, the EU Council President could be uh, Charles Michel, a Belgian from the Liberal Party family, and the uh, High Representative for Foreign Policy, which is going to be uh, elected uh, soon, uh, could be um, Joseph Borrell from Spain. So that was where, where the, the package uh, really uh, fit, and that's why she got a majority in the European Parliament. So even though um, they, the European Council didn't follow through with the Spitzenkandidaten model um, the Parliament agreed that the package as a total package is uh, uh, yeah is, is uh, getting a, a majority. It was a close majority but but still. So and the problem is um, we they we tried to, um, th- there were attempts to get this link between the Parliament and the Commission and it worked for one election but it changed in this election so we, we we're not able to tell yet what what is that going to mean for for the next election. There certainly has to be some reform because there was a lot of calls of foul play. That's not what we agreed on, so there'll be some some discussions um, about this. Okay, maybe just briefly to to conclude um, for uh, us and EU relations, I just I thought I'd pick three tweets uh, Donald Trump tweeted um, to talk about how uh, the us uh, EU relations um, change um, first of all what is interesting uh, Trump talks about US EU relations mainly in economic terms so it's a question of deficit trade deficit of tariffs of of cars being exported and imported um, and so he I mean he tries to integrate European Union, wonderful country. So I mean, he kind of hints at, well, we do have similar values, and we're, we're on the same page regarding uh, democracy and rule of law. But in the end, it's an, it's an economic definition um, of these relations. He, he favors bilateral trade deals, sees trade as a zero sum game, um, and there has to be winners and losers. And that is kind of the opposite of the idea of a single market we see in the European Union, where you say everybody profits if you harmonize the market and have no borders and no tariffs. Um, So that kind of um, makes it it hard. And you can already see that the EU, they did a big trade deal with Japan uh, looking for South America, so they're trying to get into other regions um, because there's kind of a disconnect. Secondly, um, Trump as well talks about the refugee crisis in in the European uh, Union a lot. So uh, take a good look at what has happened to Europe over the last five years, a total mess. Um, and in, in in some way he is right. So the European Union had a hard time tack- tackling this unprecedented crisis. We saw really high numbers. Um, so it, it, it was a stress test for the European Union, but they did manage to secure the external borders and they kind of did what Trump is suggesting with the southern border. So part of the package was to try to keep people out of the European Union um, after they took in a lot of refugees. Um, so, um, But there are still refugees coming and there's, they are working on a scheme to distribute them in the countries and, and finding a way to uh, to manage. So it's more um, he's right, it's a policy problem, but there's no violence or disturbances as a, as a result. And there's political competition about what to do, but um, there's no increase in violence. And crime statistics don't, don't show this. So w- here we talked about how, how, are we, how do we see similarities, and this is kind of a rhetoric of invasion, uh, the, the caravan of labeling refugees and immigrants as a threat as the other and trying to keep it out. And that is very similar to what the far right in Europe is doing. So there's some kind of uh, similarity we see here. And finally, um, uh, Trump repeatedly talks about the um, uh, contributions to uh, defense spending, and military spending. And his argument is, again, kind of in, in an economic framing that a lot of states don't pay enough for NATO, I mean, they don't pay NATO directly, but they don't. Uh, the, their uh, military forces are too weak, and they don't reach the two percent goal, which the NATO and uh, NATO agreed on. Two percent of the GDP uh, should be spent on on the military. Um, and this is interesting because even administrations before Trump, U.S. administration, have pushed states, especially Germany, which just spent one percent for a long time. Uh, so he's right. Um, pushed them to to uh, to raise those uh, those contributions, um, but they have done it behind closed doors. So um, uh, there was a lot of diplomacy and, and negotiations, and d- d- Trump has a different tactic doing it on open stage, and that kind of um, uh, is, is more hurtful for the relations. It does move the states, Germany is trying to get up to 1.5% for next year, so it, it does um, uh, it does work in a way, but then also he, he mused that uh, the question is if the US will defend a country who is not spending 2%, so that kind of undermines the whole system of collective security we have in the NATO, so again here he's, he's doing quite some, some damage. And there is some renewed initiative in the European Union, The the, the PESCO it's called, for Uh, military cooperation in the European Union, and Ursula von der Leyen as Defense Minister uh, pushed for this, and now she's Commission President, so um, this continued rhetoric will lead uh, the EU to uh, reconsider more uh, military cooperation to get the strength out of the European Union and not just be that reliant on um, the United States. Okay, sorry for taking a little longer than, uh, uh, than I was assigned to do. Uh, to maybe just to, to conclude. So the uh, European elections this year were critical for the future for the uh, EU, but we saw that the uh, changes weren't as drastic as some uh, uh, um, uh, thought they could be, and it rather speaks for continuity. Um, there isn't a, a strong Eurosceptic far-right block yet, Um, The Spitzenkandidaten model seemed to have worked, making uh, the EU more democratically accountable, uh, lowering the democratic deficit, but uh, it was uh, abolished after the election. So what are the changes going to be for the next election here? Um, And while we do see some continuity in in US um, policies regarding...